for 21 years and counting, New St. Andrews College has sought to obey Christ's great commission to disciple nations and build him a house, not just in Jerusalem, but throughout the world, not with stones and mortar, but with living stones. We build and fight. This is the task of a Christian liberal arts college, to equip students with the tools to build and fight. This is our joyful task as we seek to graduate leaders who shape culture through wise and victorious living. To learn more, visit us online at nsa.edu forward slash explore. The following content has been provided by New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. For more information, visit us online at www.nsa.edu. This term in Disputes Idaho, we have a very, uh, very rich list of uh, speakers for the whole term, which is uh, tremendous, but stunning us off. Uh, I've asked uh, the president, Dr. Ben Merkel, to give us a presidential partial exhortation. So, Dr. Merkel. Thank you. Good afternoon. This is for your protection. Keeps me from going too long. Um, I'm going to give you, uh, as Dr. Edwards mentioned, a pastoral exhortation. I'm going to be expanding a little bit on my comments from uh, the convocation. So this is a bit of a sermon addressed to all of you. Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your grace. We ask for your blessing to be upon us as we consider what it looks like to be faithful in the years that are facing us. Especially pray for your spirit to be poured out upon these students that the four years here would be instrumental in growing them uh, more like your son uh, and giving them strength and courage to proclaim your word faithfully. Praise things to your son's name. Amen. I should mention um, one, uh, one announcement that I did not get in by 12 o'clock, but I get to sneak it in now because I'm, I'm the speaker. So a reminder to freshmen. Uh, freshmen, you remember that you are invited to our place for breakfast or more brunchish uh, tomorrow at 11.15. We moved it to 11.15 so that you can attend uh, the Planned Parenthood protest. We'd love to see you um, at that event and then also at our place for brunch. But if you've not RSVP'd, please, uh, we'll give you just a little bit of leeway. If you would do it within two hours after leaving Disputatio, please do that so we know the numbers that are coming because we don't want to get hit by, some, um, by more people than what we've planned for. So there we go. All right, and now into, into my address. Over the, past, uh, over the past year, uh, we've seen a number of what have felt like setbacks uh, for the influence of, the evangel of evangelical Christianity within America, with uh, Oberfell and the Bruce Jenner nonsense and a whole host of other things. We've moved as a nation in, in my lifetime from where what we would have once regarded as a perversion and possibly criminal we now see paraded by our own government with increasingly direct requirements that we all bow to it. It's just a really radical transformation in a lot of ways. Isaiah could have been speaking of us when he prophesied, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And that's pretty much exactly what we are doing now. And there are a lot of gloom and doom predictions about what this means for the evangelical church. Now, on that subject, I want to, it's important to couch all of this in this little bit of perspective. Um, you should note how radically exaggerated our fears are. Okay? It's, I, I want to emphasize how, how serious our 
infidelity is at the same time that we need to see how radically exaggerated our fears are. Uh, the author of Hebrews uh, tells us this. Or, well, he's exhorting his audience, but I think it, it would apply to us as well. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And he's speaking of Jesus. Think of what Jesus went through, lest you get discouraged. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Think about the world or the spectrum of persecution that's out there, and then think about the things that are in front of us. Um, We could laughably dismiss what we face as the first world persecution, right? What, What is the thing that we are threatened with right now? We might lose tax exempt status, okay? That, that is the fear that we have right now is it's possible that you could make a gift to a church or to a college like New St. Andrews and not be able to get the uh, benefit of having it tax exempt when you make that gift. In the world of persecutions, that's pretty mild. I mean, what, um, what could happen next? Maybe in the next couple of years, we might find out that if you're an evangelical, you can't get a treat receipt at Starbucks, okay? That would be severe, right? So it, it's really in, in, the, in the big world, in the big picture of persecution, let's not exaggerate about how bad it is. There are people uh, in the world right now who face execution for their, face, for their, for their faith, and we um, face something far, far less. Now, granting that we need to keep everything in perspective like that, we should still, still note that something radical has shifted in America, or at least a radical shift that has been afoot for a long time has become pronounced. Okay, this is something that's been growing for a long time, but just in a very brief moment, suddenly a couple things happened to make it clear how much America has shifted. And this shift means that if you truly graduate to be leaders who shape culture while faithfully living under Christ, which is the, the mission that we have for you, all right, if you, if you truly graduate from NSA, having, having um, been shaped by that, then you're going to be meeting increasingly serious hostility, okay? It is going to get um, more and more pointed as you stand faithfully for Christ. And this shift, even though the, 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 the sorts of persecution that we're looking at this moment are mild, it, can, it has all the um, possibility of growing more intense than that. So you need to be thinking about what does it look like to become uh, somebody who's ready to lead the church in the face of that kind of opposition, you want to be figure out how to be effective in resisting that kind of opposition. And so I want to give you just a couple of, of exhortations as you think about that. I want to break it down into two kinds of opposition that, that, you'll, that you'll notice. The first is a very sort of ticky-tack, bureaucratic attempt to subtly steer you. Okay, it's this it's this really kind of silly and trivial attempt to shape you by subtle nudging in in certain directions. It's those innocuous little shifts like when somebody kind of sneaks in CE instead of AD, right? Instead of Anno Domini, they 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 sneak in Common Era, and it kind of you know it kind of rankles because you know that there's something behind that, but it's the subtle little thing, and you feel kind of silly making a big deal out of it. And you see more and more of that all around. My, my kids were doing their homework. I think my son was writing a paper, and he noticed the word processor. He, he typed the word king, and his word processor was prompting him to use a less gender-specific uh, term, and they wanted him to correct it to monarch. And, it, and it, it's just this random little trivial thing, 
And you see more and more of that all around. Um, you know, you, you perhaps saw that now if you ask Siri about, you know, a fact about Bruce Jenner, um, then it will correct you and, and let you know Caitlyn Jenner is. And, and so you're, you're getting steered and corrected by that. I performed a, a marriage not long ago, and I got the marriage license to, to fill out. And instead of groom and bride, it was spouse A and spouse B or spouse one and spouse two. Funny little things that are attempting to just kind of reconfigure the way you think about the world. And as innocuous as they may seem, they work well against good evangelicals. These little things actually um, are very effective, particularly in steering evangelicals. A couple of reasons why I think that is. First of all, to resist it, to make a thing out of it, is to kind of be a jerk, right? Because if, you, if you're the one like, no, I'm going to scribble out your, your marriage license, right? you, you have to necessarily become that person who is tedious, Right? And, and a lot of these things, if you want to correct it, you want to like stand up and say, no, it's A-D, not C-E, in the midst of somebody else's lecture. Um, you find yourself constantly in this position where to correct it makes you have to be kind of a jerk. And as evangelicals, we tend, uh, more or less most of us, want to be nice. Right? Um, now, there are a few of you that love to be that dude right, who would stand up and, 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 and let somebody have it. But mo for most people, that would, that would cut against the way you're, you're wired, and you don't want to be tedious. Um, I know that that sensation of something is being snuck in, and you have to, you, you have to stand up and do something about it. Um, I used to coach the uh, Logos High School's uh, varsity lacrosse team. Uh, if you haven't watched lacrosse, spring sport, very, very fun to watch. It's, um, and it has, it, it's a very fast-moving sport and also has um, intense moments of violence because you can do full-out um, body checks. You can knock people on the ground. And you also, you have a stick, and the deal is if the other guy has a stick, you may hit him with yours as long as it looks like you're aiming for his stick or his arms, okay? As long as it looks like that, that's fine to do this to the guy, okay? So that, that means you get a certain amount of, of, of pretty good violence um, in the sport. It was, a, it was a men's lacrosse league, but what would happen is every year, well not every year, um, every few years, one of the teams would suit up a girl on their team. And so we'd be out warming up and all of a sudden we'd see that a girl was, was coming out to play. And it was just, it was straight up Logos policy. We, our guys, we don't do that to girls. You don't go to a girl and hit her with a stick. And so you'd be, we'd be sitting there, we're getting ready for the game, and all of a sudden you'd see that, and it's just that pit in your stomach because I've got to go across the field, I've got to pull the coach aside and say, look, either you bench her or we forfeit. One of those two. Now, it wasn't out of nowhere because I would always at the beginning of the year make sure as coaches we all agreed that it was a boys-only league. Uh, it's just, the, and they were the ones who were, were changing it up on us. But it still meant I was going to have to be the most um, unpopular guy in the stadium, right? That, that moment, it was, it was never a pleasant one. Evangelicals don't like being that jerk. We just don't. And so those, those little things, as they start to get snuck in, we're reluctant to want to address it because we'd rather more or less try to get along with people. I think another reason why Christians are, are, are steered by um, these kinds of little subtle moves is because, um, all things being equal, Christians generally like to be principled and consistent thinkers. 
we like to be guided by, look, I have, I have this system, right, that, I'm, that I answer to and I make decisions out of this system, okay? We tend to think that way. And so what happens is as little subtle things get, get snuck through, one compromise tends to, in your system, demand the next, right? You, you've, you've agreed to this because you didn't want to make a big thing out of it and then the next thing comes along and you feel a little bit of an obligation in order to be consistent to go ahead and let that one slide and the next one and the next one and the next one. And we tend to find ourselves caught in this system where we're trying to be consistent and you find yourself more and more all wrapped up in this big system of compromise. Each compromise then becomes leveraged to obligate you then to the next compromise. And once that pattern of getting your head down um, develops, once that's been established, then most of the little, uh, then what, what happens is um, it becomes very easy to get you to do whatever they want, right? Because they, they've trained a certain sort of, you're just going to defer, you're going to defer, you're going to go with them, and it becomes very easy to get you to go wherever you want. You become what somebody I heard recently referred to as the sheeple, right? Uh, p- people who are easily herded, easily tended, who keep their head down, and, and you can sort of uh, shepherd them along. You become sheeple, people who are easily herded along without any objection or, or pushback. And dealing with this is tricky, is tricky because it requires real wisdom. And, and the, thing, the reason it requires real, real wisdom is because you really, many of these little issues are ticky-tack things that you can let go. A lot of these are things that you can and should, just don't worry about, it. let it go. It's not a big deal, let it go, all right? But every now and then, one comes up where it's, no, you need to stop, you need to stand, you need to do something about this. Right? And if you don't, then you become the sheeple. You become somebody who, is, who can be herded along. So to be honest, in general, most of these little issues don't actually manner, matter. They are totally inconsequential. Nevertheless, you must learn to be the person who doesn't care about saying and doing the crazy thing, doesn't care about going ahead and doing the thing that will make you look like the jerk, uh, particularly as soon as you feel that the moment has become loaded. And, and this is how you know the difference between this is the inconsequential thing or this is the thing where you need to actually draw a line. Uh, I, I think a good guiding, um, a guiding bit of wisdom or example for us here is the way Paul handles uh, food sacrifice to idols. He says two different things. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, he's addressing it, and he says, first, you can eat food sacrificed to idols. It's fine. Eat whatever sold in the market, in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. It's fine. You can eat it. Go down four verses, and he says, no, you cannot eat it. Um, If anyone says to you this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. All right, so he says, you can eat it, you can't eat it. Right. What made the difference? What, what suddenly made what was inconsequential suddenly something of significance that you couldn't do? What had happened was the context had changed. The significance of what you were doing at that moment had changed because the context had changed. The context had become a moment of you acknowledging and worshiping uh, this pagan god, which as soon as the table has been set that way, you can't partake. Would have been fine for you to do otherwise, but now that it's been set that way, now you can't. This is why I think there's such a good, um, 
the, the way the, um, the controversy played out with the evangelical um, bakers, right? The way that played out is a really good example of this, where you have Christians who are more than happy to cook and sell to somebody who's homosexual. That's fine. I, I, would, I would sell you a cookie. Not a big deal. But as soon as it became, no, I want you to come and I want you to glorify my wedding. I want you to partake in, in this ceremony. I want you to, to contribute your art to saying something about this wedding. At that moment, because it was, the wedding was an abomination, right, because that was something they couldn't participate in, they said, no, I can't, I can't there. It's a really good example of this is fine, and now the context has been set in such a way that for me to participate in that is for me um, to, to betray my convictions. And so then, then they wouldn't. So the context is what makes a difference. As soon as your move becomes a form of you partaking in the sin, of you and, and the, the partaking in it, in a lot of ways, there's a kind of a, a subtle cultural liturgy that you start to get sucked into. And as soon as you start to feel that, as soon as you start to notice that it's loaded in that way, then that's where you have that obligation to say, no, uh-uh, I'm not, I, I don't care what it makes me look like. I don't care what the consequences are. I'm not going to be a part of that. As soon as, you, as your move um, becomes a, a form of you partaking in the sin, you can't do it. And you have to speak up or you become the sheeple. Right? You become somebody who can easily be herded along to partake in whatever. One, one big piece of advice here. Um, beware of being churned against principled people who are giving real, res- real resistance but are scapegoated by the enemy. This is something that happens all the time in, right now in, in evangelical America. Uh, what happens is um, because to give resistance, to speak up, to do something, is to be the difficult person, right? What happens is other evangelicals are a little bit embarrassed by the person who's being difficult. And what happens is um, that, that embarrassment is played upon and used to make evangelicals basically take out their own. I mean, so here, here's a parallel analogy. Um, when, I was, um, when I was at boot camp, one of the, one of the things um, in, in, you know, 10 or 20 years before I, I went into the Marines, it used to be that the drill instructors could beat you. Literally, you know, like if they didn't like what you're doing, they could just, they could clock you. Then, then they, um, they basically reached the, the deal that they were no longer allowed to touch you, right? So the drill instructor could not beat you anymore. So they needed a way to control the recruits in some way. They still wanted that moment of violence, but they couldn't with their own hands. So what they would do is, let's say, let's say we're all marching along, and um, let's say they call a, a marching movement. They say, you know, by the left flank, by the left flank. So we're all supposed to take a left turn all at once. And there's always one guy who wasn't paying attention or something, and he turns to the right. Right? So you got this 80 guys who are marching, and they all turn one way, and one guy turns the other way, and then everybody trips, and it's this really embarrassing pileup. Drill instructors would freak out when that happened, because it was, it was humiliating to have your, your platoon march like that. Immediately, we would be taken to what was called the pit. It was this place where we'd have to run and do push-ups and stuff like that until everybody was sick or throwing up, and, and they would just make you miserable. They would take you there, but then the guy who had screwed up, they would bring him out to the front, and they would say, you just stand. You just stand. And, and then they would start working everybody over. And the whole time, they, they would make sure he stood 
like this, not running, not doing push-ups, not doing anything. All right? And then the drill instructor might even comment, it looks like he's just having a wonderful time here. But remember that he's the one that caused this to happen to you. Okay? He can't touch him. But what he just did was he ensured that all of us would make sure that he was taken care of. All right? that, that, was, that was, they called that the blanket party. So at night, what would happen then is that guy in the middle of the night, you know, out of nowhere, 10 or 15 guys would surround his bunk and on one, sig one signal, everybody would grab his blanket and pull it as tight as you could. And so he was basically saran wrapped to his bunk. And then other guys would have a, a pillowcase or a sock filled with either soap bars or aluminum cans and they would just beat him. And they, and they would do that and it was brutal. Uh, you'd wake up in the middle of the night, you'd hear the screaming and yelling. It was like, it was an ugly deal. It was effective. I mean, uh, there's, there's questions about the morality of it, but the effectiveness couldn't be doubted. Um, and, and they called that the, the blanket party. It was a way where they would, by maneuvering the platoon, they wouldn't have to touch him, but the platoon itself would, would dish out this little bit of justice. If you take a step back, you, you'd be, and look at the evangelical church, how often are we maneuvered into that kind of nonsense on one another, right? We, we are far more skittish and judgmental and skeptical about people who are in our ranks who may have, may have maybe stutter step, may have maybe that wasn't the most effective way of saying that, or maybe it was perfectly effective, we're just embarrassed by the moment of confrontation that followed. And then we flip and devour our own, right? The enemy doesn't even have to do anything. We'll, we're very quick to flip and devour our own because we are embarrassed by that kind of moment where somebody offended the, the, the powers that be. And the result is that unity can never really be achieved because we're constantly turned against one another. You'll see this. I mean, as soon as somebody says something that's a little bit controversial, it's the evangelicals that will churn and demand, all right, demand the, the apologies, demand the repentance. We're very quick to devour our own. I think... Um, it's a complicated story, I know, but very similar, I, I think something similar was at play with the whole, the way the Mark Driscoll scene imploded, all right? You have, I know it's a complicated, there's lots of stuff behind the scene, but that was, that was weird, the way in just a moment, the whole church just boom and just pulled that down, right? You had a guy who, you had some problems, but there was a whole lot of faithfulness that was happening there, and that had caused a lot of animosity against him, and then in just a, second, uh, just a second, somebody blew the whistle, and the church just yanked that down. And we do that again and again until we can learn to not be so quick to turn on one another. That's not to say we can't be critical. Right? There's constructive criticism. But we all know the difference between constructive criticism and, somebody, and just trying to take somebody out. Right? If, if we use the kind of criticism that we used against our evangelical brothers, if that was what was dished out at you, perhaps like during declamation, uh, you just finished your, your declamation talk, and then we laid into the, the speaker the way we do um, evangelical leaders, right, wouldn't be constructive, would it? It'd be a totally different thing. We end up doing the enemy's work for him by devouring our own. Um, also, this is why I think um, we've gone so much further with the current controversy over abortion, because the focus of the conflict is so clear and straightforward. I mean, we've been, we've been blessed with this one, because it is so very precise. If it was just a little bit of a more nebulous issue, guaranteed we would have none of this unity. But there's such a unified focus because of how just pinpoint 
um, accurate and clear this is. Add just a little bit of ambiguity. There's no way the church would have responded the way it is right now. And because of that, we've been able to resist division uh, thus far. So the first move that's the attempt to steer you is that, that sheeple move, that attempt to get you to just go along, acquiesce with these little sort of bureaucratic ticky-tack maneuvers. The second, the second move is to just intimidate you into silence through raw power. Okay? The first is just subtle, subtle steering, and the second is a very, a very violent and straight up the middle, you will sit down now or you will be beaten. Okay, it's a, it's a very, it's, it's a very um, appeal to raw power. One of the things you'll notice if you ever go to a demonstration that has anything to do with sort of sexual perversion, where, where both sides are there, not where it's just the Christians, but where the other side actually shows up, you will notice that, that the, the side that's advocating for some form of sexual perversion will be very marked by extreme anger and screaming. It is, it is just power, right? It's just going to be all volume. It's not a direct conversation. It's a raw assertion of power. Think of just in the last little bit how many examples you can see of something like this. If you saw maybe that probably went around on Facebook for a while, there was that interview. Ben Shapiro was, was one of the guys on, on the stage, and there was the um, transgendered guy. Um, he goes by Zoe Tour. And, and so cross-dressing, in this interview, and, and Shapiro says something about um, the transgender thing being a, a mental illness. And um, the, the Zoe guy says to him, you cut that out or you're going home in an ambulance. Grabs his shoulder, says, you cut that out, you're going home in an ambulance. Where, where else in just like a normal TV interview do you see somebody so quickly, like just boom, like that, going to, I'm going to beat you, okay? It goes straight to power so, so quickly. Um, think of, if you haven't watched the, the, um, the videos of the, the lectures that Doug uh, did at Bloomington, Indiana, it's, it's just remarkable how you've got this audience that's supposed to be here for lectures, and it is just screaming straight through. There's no conversation, there's no attempt to have dialogue. It is just chanting and screaming straight through. It's raw power channeled as outrage. Uh, what's particularly creepy about that one, I think, is the way they do it um, while positioning themselves in this position of victimhood. Right? So it's claiming victimhood. If you look at the, the videos, you'll see they, they do make up to their face beforehand to um, make like they do black eyes and bruises so they can come looking as if they've been beaten. Um, and, and all of the all of the um, all of the rhetoric is we're the victims. But they're doing this, they're, they're, they're portraying themselves as victims while screaming to shut somebody down. Okay, so it's using victimhood as a club um, to beat somebody with. Or think of, um, there's a recent blog post that was going around in response uh, to David Deladen's video about Planned Parenthood. Uh, I'm going to go on the edge here. So there's, there's this blog poach, uh, post, the title of the post was, Planned Parenthood doesn't sell baby parts, you fucking idiot. Okay? That, that's the title of the blog post. And the thing I find so funny about the post is the use of the F-bomb there. Right? What, what is the role of the F-bomb at that point? Why, why was that put in that title? I'm all for colorful language. Okay? <laughs> and with the, um, 
the Marine Corps boot camp, I've never seen such imagination with four letter words. Um, they, they actually, uh, there, there was a, there's a, next to the, um, where we would train, there was a drill instructor training place. And, and, and one of the things they would do is they would have to stand next to a tree and, and scream at a tree, chewing it out up and down for an hour straight without repeating an insult. That's, that's the imagination that's required, the copiousness, right, to keep that going. So I'm not complaining about the um, imaginative use of colorful words. The thing here is there's nothing imaginative or colorful about that title. All right, Planned Parenthood does not sell uh, baby parts, you effing idiot. Well, it, it's merely an exclamation point. It's, it's, it is language turned into violence. It is... I couldn't think of a way to make my, um, my, my title more forceful. So I'm just gonna start doing things like this, like people who, who, who you know, bold their, their font, just so you know, I really, really mean this, okay? She, she doesn't know how to, how to force you to, um, to acquiesce, and so it's, you start doing it with this sort of sloppy language. So what's the point of it? It's compensating for the weakness of her position. As I said, it's also compensating for the weakness of her vocabulary. Uh, but the one thing that's pretty obvious in these videos, as you watch them, is that straight up Planned Parenthood sells baby parts. I mean, if, if you start watching these, that's just straight up the middle of what they're doing. Now, if somebody wants to say, no, look, I think that there are some ways we can qualify this and explain, okay, let's, let, let's have a conversation. Maybe there's a nuance, some very subtle nuance that you can throw out here that would recast how I'd see it. But uh, just a straight up view of this, it's a pretty reasonable conclusion to walk away saying, no, Planned Parenthood sells baby parts. But this lady says, you're an effing idiot. You're just an idiot if you even think that. It's not reason, it's not an argumentation, it's just a raw assertion uh, of power. All right, maybe you want to qualify, maybe you want to explain away, but she's going to go out and say that you're an idiot for think, even thinking of it. There's the story of the pastor whose, whose sermon notes say, look, this point is weak, so pound the pulpit here, right? When, you, when you're weak on something, you're just really trying to make it forceful, and hopefully nobody will notice how weak it is. Now, you have to know that this is going to become, you have to know this is going to become about an exertion of raw power against you. That, that, that's what we're going to be facing, um, and, and it's not going to be a reasoned argument, and here's why. You, you have to see that this is coming, um, and, the, and the reason is that reason itself is against them, okay? When reason itself is against you, when rational argumentation is against you, then you have to go up the middle with raw power, okay? That's what you're going to have to do. Um, think of it this way. If I, what, what would it take for me to get you to say two plus two is five, okay? What, what would it take for me to get you to the point where you would stand up front and say, the answer to the problem, two plus two, the answer is five, right? What would I have to exert on your mind to get you to go with that? Um, the thing, it's not an ambiguous math problem. If it was an ambiguous problem, let's say it was a very complex math problem, and you knew that the answer I was giving was, was different than what you thought it was, but it was very nuanced and complex, and you could say, okay, I could see how maybe somehow I've gotten this wrong here or that wrong there, and so you're ready to acquiesce and just go with what I was saying because there's some ambiguity here and there. But that's not what this is. Two plus two is five, right? You, you kind of know just right up the middle, I'm wrong. So how do I get you to go with me on that? 
With a complicated math problem, perhaps some sort of subterfuge could get you there, but not this. So it has to be another method of convincing. Maybe shame, uh, maybe embarrassment, maybe, maybe I get you up here and I say, uh, what's the answer to two plus two? And they say, and you say four, and, and I've rigged so that the whole crowd would burst into laughter and, and taunt you for that. I tried this as an experiment with the kids once. Where, like we're at dinner, we do these weird kinds of things where I, would, I had all the kids programmed and like I would get one kid to come in and say, okay, so what's two plus two? And they would give the answer, four, and then the whole table erupts into laughter. <laughs> no, try again, try again. What's, and it was funny just watching them trying to figure out what's, what's going on. What, could, what you did know to be the case, suddenly when everybody's laughing at you or mocking you or something like that, that starts to maybe move you, but maybe even, maybe even laughter wouldn't get you there. You still know the answer to two plus two, right? So what does it take for me to get you to cave on that? How about I hold a gun to your head, right? What if I just say, look, say five, or I blow your brains out, okay? Now, now at that point, right, do you start to change? You, you, you've not changed, like you, you know the answer, but are you willing to like say, change what you would say so that, they, so that you wouldn't get killed, okay? You see, you see how when, when logic itself is against you, you have to start to resort to um, stronger and stronger attempts at intim intimidation, okay? And it comes down to where violence is what you're gonna have to use. That's why when we come to a point where a guy puts on lipstick and fake boobs and you're told, say he's a woman, Right. Say he's a woman. What, what do we have to do to you to get you to go with that? Okay. What, what steps do we need to walk through to get you so that you'll kind of back down? Yeah, it's a girl. Okay. What, 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 do you, what do you have to do to get somebody intimidated to the point where they'll do that? Or how about when we're told that killing a baby and selling off its parts is a noble deed? a noble sacrifice that had to be made and it's an advance in culture and to say anything otherwise means you're on the wrong side of history. Right? What do you have to do to get to a crowd, to, to get a crowd to the point where they'll look at that and say, yes, that was noble. That was, that was a good thing to do. The method of bringing your opinion into line, the methods of bringing your opinion into line are going to have to get much more forceful. Right? Because you can't sit and, and, and reason somebody through that. It's going to have to get more and more forceful. Also, a side note, a quick side note. This is why you should not let yourself fall prey to the idea that in refusing to acknowledge gay marriage, you are somehow withholding something from homosexual couples. That is the argument, right? It's going ahead playing against, uh, playing off of kind of evangelical sympathies of wanting to be the nice person again. Right? The, to say, look, you're, you're withholding something from a class of people. The charge is that you're taking away something that we all have from a certain class of people. It's phrased to sound like discrimination, um, which is um, so that the homosexual movement can kind of capitalize on the momentum of the civil rights movement. Okay? You've got a certain story. We know who the white hats are and who the black hats are from this. So now we're going to take that across and we're going to, and we're going to um, try to apply it to the, to the homosexual movement. And for you now to, um, to deny um, marriage to a homosexual couple is identical to somebody who wants to say a black man can't vote. Okay? You know that was stupid. You know that was wicked. And you wouldn't want to be in that position. So now you're saying, uh, you're stuck in this position of, are you going to withhold something from somebody else? 
you feel like a jerk because you're told that you have something that you won't share. Um, but that is not the case, and it's really important that you understand this. It's not the case that you're refusing to share something. You're not, being, um, you're not refusing generosity. Here, here is why. Gay marriage doesn't exist, right? Gay marriage does not actually exist. This is why you'll hear uh, Pastor Wilson always refer to as gay mirage, because it's a mirage. It doesn't actually exist. God told us what marriage is. Uh, and he told us what marriage is, not just what marriage is inside the church. He told us what marriage is in the whole world. All right, Genesis 2, in the beginning, he creates them. He makes them male and female. He gives one man and woman. He says a man and a woman will come together. And when a man and a woman come together, they'll become one flesh. And that moment where that happens, that is, and you need to understand, that is a real thing. Right? The moment a man and a woman come together, there's a real, actual, metaphysical thing that goes on that's called becoming one flesh. It's why adultery is a problem. It's why fornication is a problem, because you're violating this reality of two coming together and becoming one. It's a real thing, okay? And you, as a creature, I don't have the ability to make other things exist besides that, okay? Um, God made it so a man and a woman come together, that's a marriage, becoming one flesh, and he didn't make it so that two men coming together become one flesh. They don't, they don't, they don't get that kind of union that happens when a man and a woman comes together. Paul is, is using this reality, this, this reality to describe the nature of a marriage and how a husband, when he does something for his wife, he's just doing something for himself because they have become one flesh and her body is his body and he can't bless her without blessing himself. It's a real actual thing. It's not just like a, a sweet way at looking at the world. It's an actual thing that exists and it doesn't exist between two women, between two men, between a man and his cow. Okay, That, that reality doesn't happen. And to say, no, I don't believe, homosexual marriage, I'm, it's not that I'm refusing to give you something. I'm not God. I don't have the ability to create and speak with my words and make something exist that doesn't exist. So you're not holding something back. I can't call that a marriage any more than I can say that two plus two is five. It's just the way the world is. It's the reality of the world that God has created. It's not a matter of not being generous. It's just a matter of telling the truth, Okay. To go back to the guy who's in front of everybody who's told to say plus two plus two is five. And if you don't, I'm going to blow your brains out. You might force him into saying it, but you haven't forced it into being the case. Okay? And just if, even if we get all say that gay marriage is marriage, it doesn't change the fact that it's not. Um, I'm not withholding marriage from the gay couple any more than the teacher who accurately marks a problem wrong on a quiz is withholding a grade from the student. Okay? You're, you could, you could um, intimidate or bribe the teacher to do something different, but it doesn't change the reality of what is on that quiz. So then, that's where we are more and more likely to see that kind of force exerted against a faithful Christian witness because it's not a rational thing that we're working through. It's increasingly irrational. As it moves increasingly irrational, then it's going to move from argument to just raw power. So what does it take to stand when the opponent is resorting to just raw power? What, is it, what does it look like for you if you say, look, this is the kind of world I'm going to be facing more and more. What does it look like for you? What are the habits you ought to be um, um, cultivating in order to stand faithfully? 
I want to give you a couple of points that I think that are important and are all obvious, okay? You're going to find these, these are just um, no-brainer answers, but that doesn't make them any less important. The first is, this is a conflict of, this is power being exerted against you. How do you respond, how do you respond to that? The temptation is to respond in kind, right? If, if power is being exerted on you, the temptation is to want to exert um, power back, to respond in kind. The first thing to remember is where our power is found. Right? What does it look like for you to exert force? You need to be able to see the emptiness of the threat that's against you. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Your response has got to be one of faith. Because any power that you're going to exert that's going to actually make a difference, that's going to be worthwhile, that's going to cause lasting change, is a power that's going to come from God and not from you. Okay? They're grabbing it at power because they're powerless in one sense. You're submitting to God because of his power. And that's the power that you want to see lived out in your life. The desperation of the opposition that leads to the raw power grab is the result of being one who does not know the source of all real power. Okay? You know who spoke this into existence. You don't need to be worried. You don't need to be frantic. You don't need to be trying to force yourself. You know the one who spoke it all into existence. As God promised Israelites going to the promised land, Deuteronomy 31, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who, gives, who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Right? You have this promise that God is with you. He's your power. He's the one who will cause all things to work together for good. So you don't have to have that sort of desperate, white-knuckled um, um, a, a, attempt to force yourself. And as you look at the raw power that's exerted right now against the church, the temptation is to look around for equal resources on our side. How many votes do they have? How many, how many do we have? How many Supreme Court justices? How many senators? How many states? What sort of funding? There's, there's a temptation to try to marshal our troops to equal theirs. Now, I'm not arguing against being active. In fact, I think this is a motivation to be more active. I would be, um, I think this is more of a reason to be outside in front of Planned Parenthood tomorrow, okay? It's not that we withdraw from these kinds of conversations. It's you go with this peace and this confidence of where your strength actually comes from. God is our power. We aren't trying to grab it. We act because we know the God who made the world and we want to be ready to give an accounting for our service. This realization then changes radically how you approach the conflict. Ephesians 6 verse 13, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Okay? All power that you have is borrowed power. It's on loan from God working through you. And that's, you should notice, Ephesians 6.13. That's the passage that's introducing the section on uh, the armor of God, which was read at convocation. Um, you need to, to really believe that the power of God is a real thing, and that, and if you, have to, if you read through Ephesians carefully, you'll see that Paul's point is, when you put on Christ, you put on this armor. You put on this power. So putting on Christ is what puts you in a position where you can confidently enter into the battle. You think of uh, the Philistines and Goliath coming forward, and then you think of David stepping forward. It's not that he was 
he, he was so full of the confidence of God that it's not that he became um, uh, sort of a hyper-Calvinist and said, God will do what God will do, and then went home and didn't worry about the battle. He went straight forward in the battle. In fact, he was the only one that went forward, but he went forward with a very different and very um, calm confidence in the God that he served and what God would do through him. Okay? So you go, you go forward, but you go forward with a very, very different disposition than the people that you're facing. You're not that person who's shrieking, right? You're not that person who's white-knuckled and shrill. You have the confidence of being with the God who spoke the world into existence, which also means you're going to be able to speak with reason and with, with um, rationally because your argument matches the way he made the world. This, um, I mentioned this is the passage that introduces the armor of God and that you, you put on Christ, you put on this armor. And as Christians notice, I think, this sort of tremendous shift in the American political scene, there's far too much um, gasping and reeling, right? There's too, there's too much um, terrified of what tomorrow might bring. What if, if, if this is how far we've gone this, you know, by this, this moment, how much further will we have gone in a day, in a week, in a year? It feels like there's this terrible side and everybody starts to freak out, right? If you're standing in the might of God, that kind of like reeling and terror just has no place, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter how scary it gets. You ought to not let yourself lose your calm. God does not forsake his people. His might is there for us. It's merely a question of whether or not we will rest in his might or not, whether we'll be at peace in that. That's the first one. So just remember where your strength comes from. Remember it's God's might that's working through you. You don't have to grab for this. Second one, just briefly, walk in faithfulness. Be, walk in faithfulness. If you want to know what it looks like to, to, to rest in this might, walk in faithfulness. It's just the basics of growing in Christ-likeness. You're armed when you put on Christ. It's faithfulness that will receive Christ's blessing. That's why the mission statement of NSA is to graduate leaders who shape culture while living faithfully under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay? We want you to go out and shape culture while living faithfully under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think you could even change that around a little bit and say, we want you to shape culture by means of living faithfully in Jesus Christ. You putting on Christ, living faithfully, has an incredible impact. It is leaven working its way out uh, through the loaf. It is living faithfully, daily putting on Christ, that equips you to change culture. It would be worthless, utterly worthless, if we gave you a number of tactics and training for how to um, be politically active, how to do this, this, and this, if you were not actually growing in Christ-likeness. That would be a, a hollow and empty victory for us to move forward that way. We want you to be doing this while growing in faithfulness. And then the last thing, what you discover is that one of the principal fruits of godly faithfulness is that it robs your opponent of the one great weapon he has, right? The, as I said, I said before that, that this thing, the, the, where we are, will grow more and more towards raw um, grab of power. It's going to be power exerted against you, which means um, you're going to be controlled insofar as you are afraid. Okay? To the extent that you are afraid of that kind of power, you are controlled. But one of the great things about growing in faithfulness is it kills fear. 
fear, faithfulness is a wonderful way to get rid of fear. It pushes fear out of your, out of your life. And when the fear is gone, then that grab for power, it loses its power. It actually can't steer you, all right? Um, listen to 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 and 8. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Those three things, it's wonderful to see those um, brought together because I hope those really describe the students that NSA puts out. Power, love, and a sound mind. It's wonderful how those three things go together. When, when you have Christ's love in you and you're growing more and more like him, you'll find that you have a sound mind because you're going to find your mind more and more in harmony with the world that God made. Your, your thinking is brought under, under dominion of the Lord, and that means it's going to match the world that he made. And you're going to find that that has a power utterly unlike anything that the world is going to exert against you. I said the, the tactic that we're going to see more and more of is the threat of raw power. But that tactic can only work on you if you fear it. That, that's the only way it can have any influence in you. If it does not scare you, then it goes limp. Again, think of Goliath. All right? What was... Why did the Israelites refuse to step out onto the battlefield? It was fear, until there was one person who wasn't afraid. And as soon as there was one person who wasn't afraid, everything changed. Everything, everything uh, the whole thing becomes a completely different game. Hebrews 2, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Fear keeps you in bondage. Christ came to remove all fear from you so that you don't have to be in bondage. You can't be steered by fear anymore when you're in Christ. Philippians 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ and not in any way terrified by your adversary, which is to them a proof of your perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. The less scared you are, the more weird you're going to look in their eyes. And yet, because their force, their power has no, has no control in your life. And in the end, that's going to become more powerful. Um, so it, you know, you're going to be not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of your perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. So if God is going to deliver America, it will be because Christians turn to walk in his power, walk faithfully, and walk without fear. All those things start to, to fade away. Whenever God has delivered his people, and you'll see this as you guys study history, whenever God has delivered his people, it always begins by him first raising up a generation that has their eyes on him and not on their enemy. Not terrified of their enemy, but their eyes are on him. So may God bless you all to be such a generation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, Lord. We especially thank you for the grace that you have shown us by giving us your only son. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have through him, and we thank you for the fearlessness that we have from him. We thank you for the fact that we can fear no one because we've been reconciled with the God who made everything. Lord, I do pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out on these students, that you would make them faithful followers of Christ. We pray that you give them no fear and no terror for their enemies and only a love for you. I pray for sound minds, for power from you, and for fearlessness. We pray these things in your son's name, and amen. New St. Andrews College thanks you for listening. Have a blessed day.